What motivates you to lead? Is it the call to serve others, or is it the rewards that leaders often enjoy? On this episode, Patrick Lencioni returns to challenge us to find our motive in the right place. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 505. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. We can't talk about leadership without talking about the importance of motive and examining the motive for why we lead. Today's guest is going to challenge us in new ways to think about our motives for leadership and I know will give us a new way to think about this and have us focused on the things that are most important in how we lead. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show, Patrick Lencioni. Pat is one of the founders of The Table Group and is the pioneer of the organizational health movement. He is the author of 11 books, which have sold over 6 million copies and been translated into more than 30 languages. As president of The Table Group, Pat spends his time speaking and writing about leadership, teamwork, and organizational health, and consulting with executives and their teams. He is the author of the most recent book, The Motive, Why So Many Leaders Abdicate Their Most Important Responsibilities. Pat, glad to have you back. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Whenever I look at a list of podcasts, I think this has got to be the best one right here. I love what you do. It's fun to be here. I am so grateful for you saying that. I have been reading your books for 20 years now, and so much of what you do has just been foundational to my thinking. And that's actually a good lead into the first thing that came up for me reading this book is there's a line in the book that says, I almost didn't write this book because one of my heroes didn't agree with the premise. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, what was the disagreement? So Alan Mulally, great guy. He was the guy who turned Ford Motor Company around, you know, didn't take any money from the government and actually revived the company. My wife drives a Ford now largely because of what Alan did there and they make better cars and it's a better company. So he was here meeting with me and, and he and I got to be friends. And I said to him one day, I said, you know, and in fact, I wrote it in my book, The Advantage. I said, leadership is a sacrifice. It's a sacrificial activity. And he said, Pat, I just don't think so, man. You talk about sacrifice and suffering. Leadership is actually a privilege. It's an honor. And I was like, what are you talking about? Most people don't see it that way anymore. And he, this is a guy that grew up in Kansas. So I said, you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. And, <laughs> and, and he worked at Boeing and Ford. And he was like a Boy Scout kind of guy. And a, you know, one of those guys, he wanted to, be a, wanted to go to the Air Force. And he sees it. And I love that he sees it this way, kind of like it's a wonderful life, Jimmy Stewart. Like, oh, no, people become leaders because they know what a, what a privilege it is. And I said, hey, hey, Alan, I work with a lot of leaders. So many of them aren't prepared for that. They actually go into it for the wrong reason, and then they don't know why they struggle and why they're unhappy. And he had started doing some work in the Silicon Valley. He said, yeah, you're right. I've, I've started to meet a lot of these young leaders, and they're not doing it for the right reason. Mm. So, so I, I convinced him, and that gave me the courage to write the book. The book is called The Motive, but actually there's two motives. Tell me about both. Right. And, and years ago, I was at a conference giving them advice, taking questions from CEOs of all different kinds of businesses. And I was noticing that uh, some of them were, thought the advice I was giving them was strange. And I, and I was puzzled by that. I was like, why, why do all these people go, oh yeah, that's the right thing to do. And these other ones like, nah, I'd never do that. And I realized it all had to do with why they became a leader in the first place. 
See, what is your motive for becoming a leader? And there's two. The right motive is because you want the responsibility of serving others. You're willing to do harder things for the benefit of others in the organization. And that's what leadership is. And I like to say I'm kind of tired of people talking about servant leadership because to me, it's the only one. <laughs> it's like to, to, to call some leadership servant leadership is like saying, well, or you can be the other kind, which is not leadership at all. The other motive, it's reward-centered leadership. And that is, I want to be the CEO or I want to be in charge because that is good for me. It makes me cool. I can make more money. I have more attention. I have more authority, more control. And you know something? Young people, Dave, have grown up with most of their leadership role models thinking that's why I would want to be a leader because that's actually become so socially acceptable and even assumed. And yet it's a very dangerous thing. So what I'm, what this book is about, and as I say, it should have been the first book I wrote because if a person comes to me and says, Pat, you've written like 10 books, which one should I read first? I say, read the motive first, because if you're not doing it for the right reason, none of my other books are going to make sense to you. These two motives don't strike me as either or. When I think about my own career, I have been in both of these places. And I'm sure even today, like there are things that come up for me in both of these of thinking about leadership from a reward standpoint versus a standpoint of service. Have you found the same thing in your career as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not black or white. And, and as you say, I think, you know, leaders are not born, they're made. And, and the examples we have and, and how we develop ourselves and the decisions we make in our life. And so we can slide. You can have the right motive when you start and get used to people telling you what you want to hear and kind of get a little lazy. And I know in my career, I've slid at times and, and started coming to work going, what am I going to do that's going to be fun today? As opposed to what does this organization need from me? So yes. And there can be people that grew up in a system that said, yeah, I'm doing it for myself. And they can go, I don't want to do that anymore. It's empty. So yes. And I can say, hey, maybe I'm at 20% the correct motive or 80%. You know, when you think about this, it's a decision we have to make every day. Am I doing this for me or am I doing this for them? And that's really what it comes down to. But that's not just a theoretical thing. It comes down to our actually behaviors and our actions. Yeah, it's a consistent practice each single day. And, and that's why I really appreciate how you highlight some of the omissions that we tend to make when we're thinking about this and acting and being the reward-centered leader. And one of them is, and this may sound a little weird to people, is the omission of developing the team or developing the leadership team. And yeah. I, I think a lot of people would look at that on its face and say, well, you know what? Maybe I am a reward-centered leader some of the time, but that's not me because I do the team building events. We do offsites. We have a great HR team that's working on uh, building a leadership development program. And yet, that not only is that not enough, that may actually be going in the, right, in the wrong direction, right? Right. See, one of the signs that you might be reward-centered rather than responsibility-centered is that you abdicate or delegate things that only you as the leader can do. And when it comes to building your team, only the leader can be responsible for that. Now, they can use other resources, but the question is, are you as a leader pouring yourself into and taking responsibility for driving the activities to build a real team around you? Are you 
all in or are you like, yeah, I believe in teamwork. Hey, HR person or consultant, you do this. And, and yeah, let me know how that goes. And so if you're abdicating it because you don't like feel like doing it or you'd rather do something else that says, Hey, I don't really believe it's, it's important enough for me to be completely involved in and invested in. So yeah, you might say, well, I've, I've delegated that. And so I care, but that's not what this is about. If you're the leader, this has to be one of your, and these five, these five areas and actions of responsibilities that many reward center leaders don't do is a great way to evaluate yourself. So if you're like, yeah, I don't really like doing team building stuff. And I'm not talking about esoteric BS team building stuff like catching each other, falling out of a tree or blindfolding each other around a hotel room. I'm talking about difficult conversations and building trust and engaging in healthy conflict and, and loving the people that work with you. Hmm. It, it, this strikes me as like, it's really easy for us to delude ourselves into we're doing the work because of the activity, but not doing what you just said. And when you see leaders who have been stuck in this reward-centered framework and they start to move a bit and really dive in with doing the leadership development, what are they doing that's different? I think one of the things they're the, at, at, a, at a higher level, what they're doing is preparing themselves for the fact that they have the hardest job in the company. They are coming to work thinking, I need to be prepared to do the hardest things and suffer more than anybody else because I come last. And that sounds very, I mean, that's theoretical, but I mean, they have to come to work every day and feel like if I'm not ready to do the hardest things and I can't expect anybody else to, but as far as the actual specific things they do, you know, those other things, they run exhausting, great, intense meetings and they prepare for them and they run them with the level of total commitment and involvement that they're required. That's one of the things that responsibility centered leaders do. You know what else they do? They manage the heck out of their people, not micromanage, but manage. They know what their people are working on. They know what their development in their career is like. They know what's, how things are going. And they're, they're willing to spend time managing their people. So many leaders don't like to do that, Dave. So many leaders, especially as they get higher in the food chain, think, you know, I used to manage people all the time. Now I'm getting a little older and I'm, and I'm wiser and I'm, and I'm higher in the food chain and I hire adults. And I have to trust them. And by the way, I don't ever want to micromanage them. So I'll let them know if they fail, but I shouldn't have to babysit them. And that is just an excuse for, for not managing. So one of the things that I find, and by the way, this was mine. Dave, this is the one I struggled with. Do I really have to manage my people? And the answer is yes. I don't care if you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar organization or an executive at a startup. Your job is to manage your direct reports and actively. And so if you're not doing that, it's probably because it's not fun to you or interesting to you and you'd rather be doing something else. One of the other things you have to do is you have to constantly remind people about what matters. If you're a good leader, if you're the CEO of your organization or your team or your department, essentially, you have to be the CRO, the chief reminding officer, and if you're bored repeating yourself, if you're tired of saying the same things to people and reminding them, you need to get over it. Because the purpose of being a, a leader is not to entertain ourselves or to move on to the next shiny object. The best leaders in the world, and Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines is one of them, and he does this all the time, 
are constantly repeating to the people that work for them what matters most. And they do not care if people can do a good impression of them when they're not around. <laughs> they do not care if people are like, yeah, we know. They're going to say, I know, and I'm going to keep telling you. And I'm never going to stop because we are not going to take our eye off the ball. Alan Mulally used to do that at Ford all the time. And so that's one of the other things that great leaders do. They never get tired of reminding people what matters. So it's, it's managing your team as a building your team, managing the individuals who work for you, repeating yourself, having great meetings and having uncomfortable, awkward conversations with people, not just your direct reports, but other people in the organization, customers, vendors, employees deeper in the organization. I've seen CEOs, oh my goodness, the stories I can tell of CEOs who refused to have difficult conversations and created immense suffering in the rest of the organization purely because they didn't want to have to be uncomfortable. I would not have believed it before I started doing this work that that was the case. If you had told me, if you had, if I'd seen it in the book, I would have been like, okay, that's nice. Pat's writing his books. <laughs> but now having seen it, it's really, really stunning. I mean, it isn't anymore because I've seen it so much. But the thing that the, the sort of sad truth I've come to is that I have to prepare people for this as they go up the food chain, is that it seems to me like the higher up you go in the food chain, the less consistency there is in handling difficult or uncomfortable situations. And Absolutely, Dave. I, Absolutely. You think it should be the opposite, right? Like you should yes. like people should, if they get to a certain level, they should have learned by this point that they need to confront, that they need to have healthy conflict. And yet it is it's it, it, you've seen the same thing. It's it's like the exact opposite. You know, imagine like you work at a, for a construction company, the guy or gal that's pounding nails or, or, or managing the people that are putting up there, they have to manage those people and have, and if they see somebody doing sloppy work, they have to go, Hey dude, you're doing sloppy work. And that can't be because this is going to affect the business. And then they become a supervisor of the managers and they're going to be like, well, if I don't manage these people, that's going to be sloppy work. And then they become the executive in charge. The CEO after is like, I don't want to have to have that conversation. And, and then downstream, everybody else is suffering because nobody's telling each other the hard things. And it happens all the time. They're, they're farther removed from the impact of it. And they feel like, well, it doesn't really matter if I do. And it matters more. Yeah. Well, this comes back to something else you mentioned a bit ago. And I want to loop back to it because I think it's so key of the willingness to show up and manage. And yeah, one of the things that really gets in the way of a lot of people, it's gotten in the way of me before is having been micromanaged before and saying, well, I don't want to be that person. I want to show up and I want to trust my team. And that's the kind of leader I want to be. And yet it is a, we, we tack completely the wrong way then. Like we abdicate our responsibility. And you mentioned that you struggled with this. And I'm curious, like when you moved from, from not doing this to starting to do this better, what is it that you did that worked for you? You know, I think the thing is, I just talked to a guy the other day about this. And in fact, a priest, a priest who struggles with this said, here's the thing you have to do. You just have to get the first sentence out of your mouth and say like this, can I have a conversation with you? Or I need to tell you something that's kind of difficult. Once you say that, everything flows downhill from there in a good way. It gets easier. And, and suddenly the, the air is let out of the balloon and the pressure goes away and you're like, okay, we could do this. But you have to start. It's like anything else, like how did you learn to start exercise, to exercise more? 
I just started. <laughs> I exercised this morning. I didn't want to. I put on my shoes. I took the first step and I'm like, this is pretty good. <laughs> so just start saying to people, can I have a difficult conversation with you? And it will go from there. So get the first words out of your mouth. Also, the other thing you need, I need to do is I need to say to my team, hey, I don't like to do this. I can be kind of a wuss and it's not good for you and it's actually selfish. So just know I'm not good at it. I'm going to try to do more. So anytime you want, stop and ask me if there's something I need to tell you. <laughs> Let them coach you. You know, this is the coaching podcast. The best coaches we have are the people that work for us. And when we go to them and say, I need to get better in this area and I'd really like you to kick my butt, that is the best coaching we're going to get. The willingness to have that courage is huge. Like you said, it's starting. Yeah. It's that one sentence. It's the start. And once you start, you're going to go, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up, but you're going to go in a place that's going to push you and help you learn and help you be more courageous as a manager. By the way, you know what a lot of leaders say to people when they don't want to have a difficult conversation or do something hard? They say things like, I don't have the time and the energy for that. It's, it's like, oh, I'm too busy. I, I once, this happened to me once years ago, I worked before I started my own company. I was in charge. I was like a, in charge of organizational communication and, de and leadership development at a company. So I had my annual budget review with the chief financial officer. It was a pretty big company, software company. And the CFO said he, he was supposed to go over my numbers with me for my budget. And he goes, hey, Pat, if it were up to me, I'd fire you and your staff and cut all these programs out and put the savings to the bottom line of the company because I think this work you guys do is silly. He was like a curmudgeon guy. And I was like, well, thanks for sharing, you know. <laughs> so I went to the and I said, okay, you need to go talk to the CEO and tell him that you think this is stupid because you either need to get on board or convince him that you're right and put me out of my misery here. He goes, I'm not going to do it. So I said, well, I'm going to. He goes, I don't care. Next day, I, I went to the CEO. I knocked on his door. They were next door neighbors in like a 10,000 person company. I said, um, hey, Mark, Fred over there, the CEO, he thinks the stuff I do for you is stupid. He told me that. He doesn't want to fund it. He tells people he thinks it's stupid. He doesn't even send his people to half of our programs. I think you need to have a conversation with him. And the CEO said to me, I don't have the time and the energy for that. Hmm. And I'm like, what? It's a 10 minute conversation. Walk next door and say, hey, Fred, what the hell is going on here? So many leaders will say, oh, I can't do that. I've got, I've got Wall Street to worry about. I've got this other thing to going on. I got, and it's like, no, I think you have the time and the energy to pick up the phone and say, what's going on here? We need to talk. And so as coaches, if people, when, they're, when you're coaching a leader, say that's a courage problem, not a time management problem. And it's a selfishness problem because you're going to make other people suffer so you don't have to. So to all the leaders out there, you know, one of the things I did is I had to go to my people and say, I thought I was a nice guy for not having these conversations. I'm actually a selfish one. And it's not in your best interest that I do that. Yeah, it really is selfish to not confront and to not yeah. uh, and to not because ultimately you're hurting yourself, you're hurting the organization and you're hurting that person's career evidence. The story you told earlier, the guy in the plane. You're hurting everyone if you are unwilling to have the courage to enter into that tough conversation. And you know something? I have to tell you, I don't like doing it. I mean, my personality isn't one that likes to do it. But I know that when I don't confront somebody, they're not going to call me three years later and say, hey, thank you for not confronting me because I just got divorced because I didn't fix that problem or I just got fired or my life is unwound because I never got better. But at least you didn't make me feel bad that day. Hmm. Yeah. And yet we make that decision all the time. 
And I like to say, if you love the people you work that work for you, and I hope you do, even if you don't like them all the time, I hope you love them. I mean, I don't like my kids every day, but I love them. Mm. You better have that conversation because that's in their best interest. And you know, when I thought about it in terms of my own children, I said, why do I not tell the people at work what could make them better? I am a jerk for not doing that. You mentioned running great team meetings earlier and the importance of meetings. And I think that that's a key principle to dive in on. And you highlight two things that you say is so important about this. One of them is better decision-making. What is it that is different about leaders who are really running a great meeting and doing better decision-making from the ones who aren't? You know, I, I think what people don't realize is meetings are supposed to be hard and exhausting and, and engaging and difficult. And I think that most of us have decided meetings are corporate penance. We do it because we have to. If we can get through it without any blood and we can just get through it and finish it and go on to work, we're okay. And, and, and so many leaders have said to me, you know, Pat, if I didn't have to go to meetings, I'd like my job more. And I'm like, well, what do you think your job is? I'm like, imagine if a football player came to you or even a football coach and said, if it weren't for the games, I'd really like my job or a surgeon. If I didn't have to operate on people, this would be a sweet gig or a teacher that's saying, man, teaching, preparing lesson plans and actually lecturing. I hate that. Otherwise I like my job. Meetings are the very central act of leading. If you were to ask me to observe one thing at a company, to evaluate whether I should invest in it or I thought they were going to be successful, I would go to their executive staff meetings and see, are they focused? Do they, are they honest? Do they make tough decisions? Do they rally around things? Do they challenge one another? That would be exactly what I would do to evaluate an organization. And a leader who mails in meetings, and I've seen it. I've seen CEOs read the sports page when the meeting got boring during a meeting. I've seen leaders in meetings Look across the table at somebody who was literally asleep and not wake them up or say anything and let the meeting go on. I mean, I had professors who did that in college, and I thought, dude, you realize that guy sitting across the table is asleep. Do you have any pride in the work you're doing? (laughs) Do you think he needs to learn this or she needs to learn this? CEOs have to go to meetings and say, it's my job to make sure we're talking about the hardest things that people are engaged. And if I have to challenge them, if we have to debate things, if we have to argue, that's what it takes to make good decisions for the rest of this organization. And far too many leaders have given up on meetings. And I get it because they've had a career of boredom and and lack of effectiveness. But meetings themselves are not the problem. Bad meetings and CEOs who mail it in, that's the challenge. For years, I was an instructor for Dale Carnegie, and oh, um, you're kidding! Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was amazing. I don't think I shared it with you. Um, and one of it's incredible. I mean, you go through hundreds of hours from Carnegie to even get in front of a classroom to tandem teach with another instructor. It's like 300 hours. It's an amazing, amazing process. And one of the principles that Carnegie teaches instructors is there's a quote from Carnegie, and I won't get it correct, but that no class participant will ever exceed the standards set by the instructor. Absolutely. And so we were taught, you know, you need, if you're the instructor, the facilitator coming in the room, you need to absolutely set the highest standard. And I was thinking about that in the context of this message about meetings too, because it's not only better decision-making, 
But it's also one of the points you make in the book is it's about setting the standard for the rest of the organization too. Right. That's your stage. And people are watching you during that meeting and going, he cares or she cares about this. She has, she is driving us and she's driving herself in this meeting. I'm going to do that too. You know, you, people like to, to talk about football coaches. I was just thinking, as you said that Bill Belichick and I'll do another one, Bill Walsh, two great coaches. They're, they had maniacally high standards and people were like, how come their teams were always so good? It's because you couldn't work there. You couldn't play on that team or coach on that team and not have high standards. And so imagine, though, if they came to practice and screwed around and joked around and didn't prepare, they, they would have no expectations that their teams would. And we as leaders have to do the same thing. And meetings are the number one place where they watch us. You mentioned the term chief reminding officer a bit ago, and yeah. I wanted to loop back to that too, because that is a, a, that's a challenge that a lot of leaders handle. And uh, you write in the book, most CEOs don't hate the idea of communicating to employees, but the majority of them greatly underestimate the amount of communication that is necessary. What is the, what is the miss that leaders are making on this? You know, I think one of the best, I, the humorous way to look at this is that old adage where the woman comes home and says to her husband, why don't you ever tell me you love me? And he's like befuddled. And he says, well, what are you talking about? I told you when we got married, I, I'll let you know if it changes. And mm. I think honestly, there's two things that make people not like to over communicate. One, they think it's redundant. Like that's not efficient. <laughs> you know, it's like I said it once that would be a waste of time. I can say so many other things, <laughs> which is ridiculous. If you've ever been a parent, you know, if you, you know, if my kids make fun of me for telling them not to do drugs or have sex before they get married, I'm fine with that because I want them to know that that's what I believe. Now, the other reason why we don't like to over-communicate is because we think we're going to insult our audience. And, and there's something virtuous about that. We're like, I don't want to make people feel like I think they're stupid. Hey, nobody ever left a company because their leaders over-communicated. Nobody ever said, I've had it. If they remind me one more time why my job matters and why, what our values are and why customers matter and why this work is so important. But they do leave because they're like, nobody talks about customers. Nobody, nobody reminds me why this matters. I went to orientation. They acted like this is important. It's been five years. Nobody's even said that. Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines, I've watched him for 15 years intermittently. I go to their employee meetings or I go to an event he stands up and reminds people in different ways, but he's, it's the same message every single time. He talks about making travel affordable, making people's life events important, how important everybody is in working with customers and in, in working with each other. He says it over and over and people love it. Alan Mulally refused to change his message in order to make it sound more sophisticated. When he took over Ford, he put together a single plan he put it on one business card. He gave it to everybody. He even shared it with the Wall Street Journal when they interviewed him. A year later, they brought him back and they said, what else you got for us, Alan, at the Wall Street Journal? He goes, here it is. And he gave him the card. And they said, yeah, we've already covered that. Give us something else. He goes, no, I'm not here to entertain you or me. I'm here to keep my company on track. And I'm not going to move on to the next object or the next, you know, bright, shiny thing or the flavor of the month. My job is to keep people focused. And I will say it till I'm blue in the face. And you know something? It's right about the time that you feel blue in the face that people start to get it. They're just starting to hear it, right? They're just starting to hear. It. And you've said it 20 times, but any given employee has only heard it four. And you know what research? They actually did research on this, Dave. 
it's not until a person hears something seven times from a leader in an organization that they actually believe it. Mm. And I, I, I promise you what I'm about to tell you is true. 25 years ago, I heard that same statistic and it was six times. I honestly think that people are so, you know, everybody's heard a CEO stand up or a leader and say, oh, quality is job one or employees are our greatest asset or something like that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know everybody's supposed to say that. And it's written on the wall and there's a t-shirt too. But when your leader gets up every time and says, I, I mean it, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to tell you yet another story about it. And then you, you hear them again later and they go, hey, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re repeat this. You're, after a while you go, I think this one believes it. And yet so many leaders do a disservice by saying, I think I've said it enough. And they're not entertained as much by their own message, which is one of the key points you make in the book is it's, it's not supposed to be about you, right? Getting back to what we were talking no. about earlier about a quote unquote servant leadership is it's not supposed to be about you. It's supposed well, to be about this, serving. Get this, Dave. So a, a reward centered leader will say, will go to one of their communication people and say, we're preparing you for a meeting. I used to be in charge of communication. I had this CEO at this other company and he would go, I don't want to communicate that. That's boring. What else do you got? And, and it was, and literally it's because, because this is for me, because I'm playing the role of CEO and I want it to be fun and cool. Whereas somebody else will go, I don't care. What, what do they need to hear? I will say whatever they need to hear. I don't mean say whatever, like change it. I will do it again and again, because it's not about me. Like, as you just said, but that is so fundamental. And that's what this book is about. What is your motive? What, when you get out of bed in the morning, are you like, what am I going to get out of work today? Or what am I going to give to work? You know, people go to church and they go, what am I going to get out of it? And somebody once said, you know, I think you get out of it what you put into it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's the same thing about leadership. And I have myself come to work for months at a time looking for something to stimulate me, entertain me, and make me feel better about myself. And I was a crappy leader during that time. Huge. Thank you for this book. It's just such a, it's such a powerful message to all of us. I know you're working on new things too. What's coming for leaders next? You know, I should be writing a book right now, Dave, but I actually did something different. About five months ago, we had just come back to work from COVID as a team. We, we were a small company and things were going on in my life and, you know, things are tough. And one day at work for a variety of reasons, I came up with a model. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't think I wasn't sitting down to come up with a model, but I was frustrated in my own job and I had been for years and somebody asked me a question and we started to talk. And four hours later, we were staring at the whiteboard and we'd come up with, with this, this model. And we were like, wait, I think this is real. And one of our consultants saw it. And the next morning, he just wrote it down. And he went out and told the CEO about it because the CEO was struggling. And the CEO started to tear up and said, oh, my gosh, this is my whole issue. And, and we started sharing it with friends and family. And four months later, we launched a product. We've never done anything like this before. It's called The Six Types of Working Genius. Now, it's going to be a book, but for the first time, I actually launched the product that goes with it before the book because we couldn't keep it to ourselves anymore. We have a way to help people quickly assess what their God-given genius is. See, there's six geniuses that, that are required to get anything done. Every organization, every project, every family, if they want to be successful and get things done, they need to tap into six different geniuses. It's like a process of getting work done. And every human being only has two of them, two of the six. And so the, the idea here is if you're a leader, you need to know what your geniuses are. 
so that you can use them. You're going to be much more successful. And so that you can bring people around you who have the other ones that you don't have. And two of those six geniuses are actually working frustrations. Like you're bad at them. You don't like doing them. They don't give you joy. They don't give you energy and you're not naturally talented. You better know what those are and surround yourself by people that can do that and that know you're not good at it. And in the first month since we launched it, 20,000 people have taken this and we've never in my entire career, in 23 years of having this company, we've never gotten such overwhelming feedback from people saying, this is changing my career and my life. I never realized this. Now it explains why I've been successful and why I've struggled. And now I understand why I need that person and why I should be changing the way I do my job. Because in 15 minutes, you take this assessment and you get the report back and it says, here's what gives you energy. Here's what drains you of your energy. And here's the things in between that you can do for a while. But if you do them for too long, you're going to burn out. So we want, <laughs> we, we price this tool at 25 bucks. Dave Ramsey, I don't know if you know who Dave is on the radio. So oh, yeah. that's way yeah. too, yeah, he's a friend. And he said, this is way too cheap. You should have charged more. We said, no, we want everybody to do it. And your people listening to this can do it for half price for 12 and a half bucks. You can take a 15 minute assessment and get this report back with videos and descriptions and your, and your results. If you go do this, go to workinggenius.com. That's the website, workinggenius.com. You can do this. You can have your team do it for 12 and a half bucks a person. And you put in the, the code coaching in capital letters, coaching, and it'll, it'll be half price. Nice. I, I hate selling things, Dave. I'm not a salesperson, but we are so excited. We want every leader to understand themselves and to organize their work around their geniuses to, as much as they can. And then we want them to know their team. You know what happens when people know this stuff? They stop feeling guilty around their weaknesses and they stop judging people who have different strengths and weaknesses. Teams, it changes their productivity. This is a fabulous tool for building your team stronger, managing people better, and leaning into your job the way you're meant to. So anyway, that's, I'm so excited about that. I've, I, I'm, I've been doing this for 23 years and I feel like I'm, I've just launched a com our company again. Wow. Oh, well, boy, five dysfunctions as a team has been so helpful to so many. And I am really excited to dive in more on this. And we're going to get this all linked up in the weekly leadership guide. So those of you get it on Wednesday, uh, it's all going to be there, the code. Thank you so much for offering that to us. Patrick Lencioni is the author of The Motive, Why So Many Leaders Abdicate Their Most Important Responsibilities. Pat, always a pleasure. Dave, thank you so much. And I appreciate being on your podcast. It's fantastic. You do a great job. The same to you, my friend. Thank you. Several related conversations to this episode with Pat today. One of them is episode 350, How to Create an Unstoppable Culture with Ginger Hardage. Ginger is the former Senior Vice President of Culture at Southwest Airlines. In that conversation, we talked about the importance of the values that Southwest has and how they transition it daily into culture that you see and hear when you fly Southwest Airlines. A great compliment to this conversation about service and serving others. Episode 350 is a wonderful place for you to go next if that's of interest for you. Also, you heard Pat talk today about the importance of meetings and how that is critical for leaders to be able to serve well. 
maximizing those times and those conversations, decision-making, so many of the things that come out of meetings that many of us are a part of. If you'd like to get better at leading meetings well, episode 358 is a great place for you to start. How to lead meetings that get results. My guest on that episode was Mamie Canfer-Stewart. She's the host of the Modern Manager podcast, another great listen, uh, compliment to this show as well. And in that episode, we talked about some of the reasons you would uh, do meetings, what the purpose is behind it, and then practical tips to do better, episode 358. Of course, a great place for you to go. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 486, Three Stories to Tell During Uncertainty, with my guest, David Hutchins. Uh, Pat talked about the importance of leaders being able to remind and being able to send a consistent message throughout the organization over time. No better way to do that than through the language of story. And David Hutchins is an expert storyteller and so useful for us on how to do a better job at telling stories. And he walks us through three key ways to do that, especially right now during times of uncertainty in episode 486. You can find all of those on the coachingforleaders.com website. And one of the things you'll want to do if you haven't already is set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. There's a ton of benefits inside the free membership and a new one starting today. One of the things that many of you have been diving in on and appreciating over the last few years is that when I read books from guest authors, I share the highlights that I have uh, found that I thought would be most useful for you to dive in on. I often use those highlights as the starting point for interviews. And then what I do is I write out a lot of notes and I do a ton of interview prep. And then recently I was cleaning up those notes to post online for the episode notes for every podcast. And I was hitting delete over large paragraphs of things that I was trying to clean up. And I got to thinking, you know, I think other people might benefit from seeing some of the other things that show up on my notes, um, things that sometimes don't come up in the interviews and aren't necessarily highlights from the books, but just things I'm thinking about and questions I'm asking and even some of the questions that I'm thinking about that we don't necessarily get to in the interviews. And I got to thinking, well, I should probably share that too. So beginning with this episode, in addition to sharing some of the key highlights from reading, I'm also going to be sharing some of my selected interview notes. So the notes that I prepared when I sat down with Pat and had this conversation, I'm sharing those with you as well. Those will be in the same document. You can find those on the episode notes, or I'll be posting those as I do often in the weekly leadership guide. Uh, same download, just in addition to the highlights. You'll also see my interview notes there as well. I hope it's helpful to you, especially those of you who I know do take notes or like to dive in in more detail after conversations. I hope that's a useful resource for you. And now an additional benefit of free membership. So if you don't have your free membership set up already, go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. It'll give you access to the entire library, searchable by topic. Uh, now my interview and book highlights uh, for episodes. It'll also allow you to get access to the weekly leadership guide coming every Wednesday, plus a ton more resources. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go to set that up. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Minda Hartz to the show. She is the author of The Memo, and we're going to be having a in-depth conversation on how to support women of color in the workplace. Join me for that important conversation next week with Minda Hartz. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you next Monday. Take care, everybody.